Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. <clears throat> and when you get there, our residence will be in chapter 5, chapter 5 of the book of Exodus. If you are visiting Westmount Bible Chapel today and do not have a Bible with you, just simply look in front of you at the racks in front of you. You will see one there and you could follow along with us there, Exodus chapter 5. As you're turning there, consider with me this thought, because I'm quite sure of this, that there is no one in this room that likes to be rejected. Nobody likes to be rejected. Rejection is the stuff of pain. It's the stuff of humiliation and unmet expectation. Yes, rejection often hurts so much because it is so stark and so shocking. And with that, Westmount, this morning, we are not talking about the kind of rejection that's possible rejection. You know what I mean? This is not the rejection that could come from, well, let's see how this thing goes. This is not the rejection of, I'm hoping for the best here, and then rejection. Not that. That's not what we're talking about today. No, today we're considering the rejection that follows confidence, that follows momentum. You know the rejection that follows certainty. That's what we're talking about this morning. And that's what makes the rejection so painful and so hard to take. We were confident. We were on a roll. We were quite certain, and then we were rejected. We've said it wasn't supposed to go this way, right? It wasn't supposed to go down this way. I had a plan. We had an offer. As you saw it, everything made sense. This was a slam dunk. This was a no-doubter. Yet, yet, you were rejected. Maybe in those moments, as you recall them right now, the person not only rejected you, but they got angry with you, and they turned on you. How did you respond? Or, consider with me, Westmount, how would you respond in that scenario? Well, as you consider that, I want to suggest one last rejection variable here this morning, and that is this, rejection that is forewarned, rejection that is predicted, foretold, declared. Yes, what we are not talking about here is human warnings. We're not talking about that. You know, the friend or relative that says, I'm telling you, they're going to say no. No, this is of a higher foretelling. You know, in those, we often march on in spite of that because at times, what? On a horizontal level, they're wrong, right? They're wrong. We encountered a yes, and in our flesh, we want to say, I told you so. And that's another sermon. No, that kind of earthly guessing it right or wrong, that 50-50, is not what's in view today. We are talking about this morning rejection that one, a particular one, who is never wrong, predicts. We're talking about rejection, not just forewarned, but infallibly declared. We're talking about rejection that God Almighty says will happen. Listen, that's sovereign God's decree. We're talking about foretold rejection, here it is, of God's offer, God's word, the rejection of God himself. This is the foretold rejection that all the prophets received from God. You know this. When God called Isaiah in Isaiah 6, God said plainly, go and proclaim. But know this, God says, you will go and speak, but they will hear and not understand. Isaiah, I am sending you and they will reject you because their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, and their eyes are blind. You talk about a mission. In other words, to simplify this and to put it into focus, I have called you, I am sending you, and you will be rejected. With earthly lens, that would be futility, wouldn't it? What about the call of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 1, God says again, I am calling you, I am sending you. But then he says this in verse 19, they will fight against you. Not just rejection, but anger. What about Ezekiel? Maybe it will fare better for Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, God says, Son of man, Ezekiel, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels, 
who have rebelled against me. They are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them. Wow. Even more, God goes on to say in verse 6, Be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. In other words, the reception will be frightening, which is confirmed with this. Next thought. God says, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Beloved, those are the calls of the major prophets. We just touched on them. Those are the most well-known. What about the others? Those are the big prophets facing rejection. What about the others? The Old Testament has a landscape of rejection of God's messengers. What about the New Testament? Jesus' final teaching on the night before he was betrayed and tried. He tells his disciples as he's preparing them, equipping them to go into the world. That not only will they be rejected, but in John 15, 18 to 19, not just rejection, they will be hated. They will be hated. That's right, I have called you, I am sending you, and your reception, apostles, your reception, children of mine, is this, it is hate. It's hate. That hostile reception confirmed later in the New Testament, not only by Paul's life, I want you to just stop for a moment and consider the epistles, the book of Acts. What kind of reception did Paul get generally? Red carpets? No. He was rejected, rejected, and in rejection, they turned on him. Remember all his incarcerations? After recounting the list of the faithful in Hebrews 11, again, we're just continuing the survey, the divine author, then of the book of Hebrews, records their various rejections in graphic detail. Listen carefully. This comes at the end of the Hall of Faith. Talking about the kind of reception they received. Hebrews 11, we just pick it up in the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Rejection. Rejection with anger. Rejection being turned on. Beloved, do you see a pattern in God's word? God calls... God gives a message to declare, and with it, a warning of rejection. And as we see in the prophets in the early church, no child of God is spared from this mandate. Do you see that? No child of God is spared from this mandate. And that is precisely why we're going to see the same recipe, the same mandate here in the book of Exodus. In fact, remember, just last week, we looked at God's sovereign declaration on how Moses and the message would be received. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Part of Moses' final preparations, remember, was that warning, that certainty. Now, by any measure of observation, you would say, Moses has a heads up, right? Moses has the heads up. Part of Moses' equipping is the understanding that he is going to Pharaoh. And when Moses says, thus says the Lord, let my people go, one response in view of what we've read, beloved, to this point that we know will not be when Moses says, let my people go, we know what we will not see from the mouth of Pharaoh is this, oh, that's right, that's right. Here's the red carpet. You guys can go. What help do you need? We would not expect that, right? Sovereign, almighty God has decreed, I have hardened his heart, and he will not let my people go. Consider expectations and rejection. Moses, the Lord has told you about rejection. You know that, and you will expect it. You should. In fact, of all the things we would say Moses has been equipped for, and we could say many that we've looked at these past few weeks, it's this. Of all the things he's been equipped for, one of the most prominent is rejection. 
Think about that. He's been equipped to be rejected. Rejection that is certain, rejection that is epic, rejection that is divinely decreed. Yet as sovereignly declared as rejection is for Moses, for us, there is a struggle, isn't there? We still don't like rejection, even when it comes with the calling card of being a child of God. We do not like rejection one bit. And that is why, beloved, that is why this text of Scripture, the one open in front of you, is so informative for us today. I pray it will be so. Here in Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh, and mark that, this is the first. He appears before Pharaoh. Here in Moses' first encounter with the king of the world at this time, the first rejection of many, we're going to see three theological truths come to life, illustrated that will help us understand rejection. Let's begin with the first found in the opening two verses of chapter 5, where we look at rejection source. Rejection source. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Look at the word afterward there. Note that after the humiliation of chapter 2, after the call of chapter 3, after the preparations and final preparations of chapter 4, after all of that, then, now, Moses with Aaron stand before Pharaoh. This is the moment that God has providentially and sovereignly chosen Moses for, raised called, prepared, and sent by God. He can boldly utter, thus says the Lord. That signature statement, a hallmark of all the prophets, a divine stamp that says, these words are not my words, but the Lord's words. The Lord is speaking. I am speaking on his behalf. It's from him. As such, the messenger displayed confidence, not in himself, when he said, thus says the Lord, but God. But God. God has spoken. He demands his people to be released for a wilderness appointment. Look at it there. Referred to as a feast. As a feast. So many different ways Moses is thinking this through and articulating it here in front of Pharaoh. First is a feast, and indeed it will be to rejoice to the Lord. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. Now, one hardly needs to consider the possible state of Moses here. All that's led up to that bold, electric, loaded demand in verse 1, let my people go, right? We know the run-up to that infamous statement. And you could just imagine, right? In a sense, we don't even need to be told what is charging through Moses' veins as he stands before Pharaoh and makes that declaration. To utter those words, think about it, before the most powerful man in the world at that time. You have court with Pharaoh, and you make that kind of a demand. Moses, as we'll see, confirmed later, and it will be confirmed, and we'll see this in a moment, was assuming that that was all that needed to be said. We know that by what's coming at the end of this chapter. Moses just assumed that's all I need to do. I need to go to Pharaoh and just say, let my people go. Bang, and it's done. And again, we'll get that confirmed clearly. I mean, God has spoken, right? That is God Almighty. There's nothing else to say. So Pharaoh, how do you respond? How do you respond? Look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, don't miss it, who is the Lord? Who is this voice that I should obey it? Pharaoh says, and here it is, look carefully, verse 2, I do not know the Lord. I do not know the Lord. Beloved, this is so foundational that we do need to pause for a moment here. Look at what Pharaoh was saying. Look again, the source, the origin, the reason for Pharaoh's rejection. What is it? From his own mouth, he says what? I do not know the Lord. Church, far from being surprised at Pharaoh's response, we should be anything but. 
Pharaoh's response shows us a number of realities about the source of rejection. This is helpful. First, we consider the reality of natural reasoning. Just plain, natural sense. Think about it. Someone walks into Westmount, right? Maybe they walk up to Jeremy and says, Doug Jones has demanded all of your stuff. Give me that coffee cup, wallet, shoes. Someone just comes in and says that to Jeremy. Jeremy's like, who's Doug Jones? I mean, who, first, before you, who is this? What are you talking about? Right? In a very plain sense, we would say no one would stand for that. So in one sense, at the very skimmed level sense, this makes sense. Second, we consider the reality of natural disability. Natural disability. And what we're saying here is spiritually, by way then, naturally, that flows out into what he can do. Pharaoh has a disability that he can't see certain things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says it this way, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And here it is, listen, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Pharaoh is like natural persons, right? Who are not given regenerated eyes to see the Lord. Thus, they are spiritually blind. And I know you've encountered people like this, right? Because they're everywhere. They're spiritually blind to the things of the Lord, Jesus says, even more informatively in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, listen to this, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Beloved, that's why we say you need to be born again, because if you're not born again, you can't see. It won't make sense. Pharaoh has a spiritual disability. Pharaoh is spiritually impaired. In fact, Pharaoh, to be more theologically accurate, is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1. Hence, this response makes sense. Now, those two would be enough to understand the response here, but we have even one more. Think about this, three given here. Third, look back at chapter 4, verse 21, at the end of that. Pharaoh rejects God because why? God has what? Hardened his heart. Do you see that? This makes perfect sense. As we mentioned last week, it's so funny, they tell us, or told us this in seminary, when the plain sense is obvious and you're reading something and it's plainly obvious, don't look for another sense. Does that make sense? When the plain sense is obvious, don't go looking for something because you don't like what it says. Accept it. Wrestle with it. Take it from the Lord. In other words, the text says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's it. That's the reason why he can't see. As such, we need not seek another meaning here. We only have to receive it. Beloved, that is rejection source here, and this must be instructive, Westmount, for us this morning. Christian, you will be rejected by others when you bring God's word and message. Maybe you already have been. Maybe you've been rejected multiple times. Because, because they lack the eyes and heart to receive truth, even plain truth. There is no need for frustration in those moments. Listen, only mercy and grace. You would never fault the blind man for bumping into the couch and get frustrated that he did. He cannot see the couch. You understand it theologically. In fact, listen, your God, your Bible, your theology tells you spiritually they cannot receive it. Yet, listen, beloved, be careful here. That does not mean that theological truth does not mean you sit back or you slink back. That's the criticism of those that do not understand the sovereignty of God rightly in all things. That's what you hear all the time. In ignorance, they say things like this. If God is sovereign over hearts, why evangelize? No, beloved, no. The sovereignty of God in salvation is not a futility to evangelism. It's the fuel of evangelism. It's the fuel. Thank God it's not about you, right? God is controlling that heart. Church, rejection source here, like Pharaoh, reminds us it's not about us. 
Let's be unburdened this morning. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be eloquent. In fact, you need be nothing but faithful to proclaim God's word. That's all you need to do. Doesn't matter how wonky it's coming out. Doesn't matter what you feel it's looking like. Are you proclaiming God's word? That's faithfulness. That's all you need to worry about. Just like Paul was, the Apostle Paul, remember? Who after evangelizing Corinth, facing opposition, and you get this sense at the birth of Corinth, he's just ready to leave. And with what we know about those Corinthians, we can imagine. Yet as Paul looked at that pagan city, at that Corinthian landscape, dusting his shoes, sack in hand, ready to go, likely just feeling like, okay, everyone who can see is seen. God says this, 1 Corinthians 18, 9. And listen, you tell me if this is Paul's work. God says to Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see that? Many in this city who are my people. In other words, God says, heart conversion is my business. I know who is mine. Paul, you're looking around at spiritually blind people. You think this is not working? No, don't let that stop you sharing the word of God. Heart conversion is God's business. You don't win souls to Christ. God regenerates the heart and opens up the heart to see. Paul, Moses, Christian, you just remain faithful to proclaim the message that I have given, God says. Yes, in fact, here's your comfort. God tells you many will reject You're in a long line of Paul, Moses, prophets. Does that give you comfort? All rejected, some sawn in two. Rejected, rejected, and so will you. And God's word tells you the rejection is not because of your eloquence, it's because of their depravity. That's why they're rejecting the message. Expect it, beloved, know it, Christian, and respond accordingly, knowing rejection source. Instead of fearing rejection, fear the one who's sovereign over rejections. Instead of fearing rejection, fear the one who is sovereign over rejections. And over every heart, obey him. Let's keep going. That's one. Second truth illustrated here. We have rejection source and rejection's weight. Rejection's weight. Look at verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. You know, just look at that verse for a moment. This development in in the account here is one of those illustrated, not just here, but we see this in our own lives. Let's just unpack this for a moment. Notice first the abrupt shift in focus from Moses and Aaron. Do you see the the shift here? It may be subtle, but look carefully. For Moses, the authoritative word, that first person speaking for the Lord is gone. Do you remember the boldness of chapter 1 or verse 1? It's gone, that thus says the Lord. It's a distant memory now in verse 3, after rejection. There in verse 1, and is commanded by God, the focus was where? On who? God, God alone, thus says the Lord, let my people go. That's what Moses is all about, God's business. Look at God, pointing to God, focus on God. Here now in verse 3, look at this subtle shift. The focus is shifted where? To them. This is now Moses and Aaron issue. What they need to do, what might happen to them. Do you see that? Don't miss this. At the first hint of rejection, they do what? They make it about them. You see that? First hint of rejection, it's now about them. In fact, they immediately get what? Self-obsessed. So much so, look at what they say. They're concerned of what? Look at the text. Pestilence and swords? The careful reader says, where in the world are you getting that? Where where, where is this coming from? That's self-obsession, right? Creating your own narrative. And beloved, we know this playbook. We've aced it. Consider when we face rejection. Like here, it's often not long, it's not long before we start focusing on ourselves, right? Have you been there? The first hint of rejection and you turn the camera right on yourself. We take our eyes off almighty God alone, the sovereignty of God alone, and we fix them on the fallibility of man. What will happen to me? 
How can I go on? Woe to my next few steps. And on it goes. Beloved, not only is that wrong, but it's adding, here it is, undue weight to our call. Our call is weighty as it is. We just heap on our own weight, our sinful baggage. And consider, friends, that is unnecessary weight to what we're going to see in a moment. Let's look at verse 4. We continue. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh doesn't simply say no. You see that? It's not just a simple no, get out of my court. He says no plus burdens. No, add more weight. Pharaoh says those bricks you're making, you'll get no more government help with that. It's done. Find your own straw. By the way, straw was used for the clay and mud. It helped congeal it. It helped bond it. Straw was very helpful in ancient times putting bricks together. Chopped up stubble straw was very, very helpful in this process. Even more, think of the scene here. Don't think we're reducing the number of bricks per day. This is what Pharaoh is saying. I'm adding to your weight, and don't think that I'm going to reduce your quota if you produce 100 bricks and it's down to 50. No, 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 no. I'm making it heavier. You're finding your own straw, and it's the same number of bricks per day, which we just read. Quota's the same. Pharaoh looks at this vista and says, you want time away to sacrifice to your God? Look at verse 8. Well, then clearly you have idle time on your hands. You want to take a little worship vacation? Well, you obviously are idle. Thus, heavier work for you. That added burden is illustrated in detail in the verses that follow. Look at verse 10 as this gets developed. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. The foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? We see here the people scattered and left to gather straw stubble for themselves. With that, the taskmasters do not let up. You can almost hear the whips cracking. Look at verse 13. You can just hear the whips cracking. Come on now, straw or no straw, produce your share of bricks. Nothing's changed in terms of output. Even Israel's own foremen, and they're in this scene too, don't miss them, in verse 14. So this is Israel's own, the foremen of their own. They add to the burden with their own heavy question. Look at what they say in verse 14. Where is your output? This is their own kinsmen. Why have you not done as before? Church, that is the weight of rejection that God's people suffer. This weight of rejection is still faced today by God's people. The no plus the anger. The no followed by the insult. The no compounded with constant attacks. How often have we experienced no and then felt that there's a target affixed to our backs? Beloved, like ancient Israel, it is still the reality of rejection for God's people today. Yet again, we pause to consider the whole counsel of God's word here. Let's grab every little bit of instruction from this passage as we weigh it against the counsel of God's word. Take heed, for example, of what Jesus taught in Mark 4. Do you remember the parable, right, of the sown seed, the word of God, and the different grounds it falls on? Well, consider the ones that fell on rocky ground, remember? Springing up quickly in joy and excitement. 
That's almost like your picture in chapter 4, verse 31. Do you remember how this word from God was initially received by these people of God? And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. That's the sprung up seed. We are rejoicing at this word from God. Right? But when... Jesus goes on to say, when, picture the scene of rejoicing, tribulation or persecution comes, listen to this, on account of the word, the text says, they immediately fall away. Beloved, take heed of that caution. Take heed of that caution. In John 16, Jesus told his followers to expect this as they spread the word. Again, note the pattern. From verse 33, it says this, in the world you will have tribulation. And this is in the context of him sending them out. How encouraging would a casual onlooker say that is? Go out and you will have tribulation. You will have burdens. What about 1 Peter 4.12 even stronger says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Understanding rejection means we know it's coming and we're not surprised. Church, we're not surprised by the weight in rejection. We're not surprised by the added burden. Listen to me. It doesn't mean the weight is easy. That's not what we're saying this morning. It doesn't mean rejection's easy, and it doesn't mean the weight is easy, but the fact that God has prepared us and foretold it, I pray is a comfort for you this morning. And even more, Israel here is forgetting a very crucial piece of information that has been given. And we can be prone to forgetfulness, too, in these times. Look back at chapter 3. Do you remember when God was equipping Moses, giving him the message to give to the people, the message that caused them to rejoice? Do you remember that? Listen to what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 3. God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So... I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Do you remember that? Somewhere along the way, they just dropped off a cliff after verse 19. And forgot all the promises that are coming. God even connecting with that soul because of the hardened heart. Because they'll reject you, this is what I'll do. They've lost sight of that. In other words, when you look at what God has promised in chapter 3, we would say this. This is, Israel, a momentary affliction. Keep your eyes on where you're going, Israel. Keep your eyes on where you're going. Deliverance is ahead. Yes, the burden is increased for now, but note it only for a moment. Only for a moment. And again, we need to be reminded today, that was for Israel, but we need to be reminded church today of rejection's weight. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Trevor's already taken us there, 2 Corinthians 4. Trevor read from verses 7 to 18, talking about how we have this treasure in jars of clay, remember? To show the surpassing power belongs to God on us, and then this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, driven to despair. And on it goes, and then down to 16, so we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, what God was preparing Israel for, right? Oh, if they could grab a hold of God's promise. But listen to the context of this. I want to take you to the beginning of chapter 4. Listen to this. When you think about why those conditions are being experienced by God's people. Listen to this. Verse 1, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. These are messengers. They're being sent by God. And even if, think about this, they're being sent, even if our gospel is veiled, look at this, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. They can't see it like Pharaoh. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And here it is. God's proclaimers. Listen to this, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, not our eloquence, not our clever words, none of that, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about that reality for us, church, today, let's go back to Israel. One wonders... It does strike you, does it? One wonders how many Israelites on that far bank of the Red Sea stopped and said, oh yes, just as God has promised. Exactly as he said he would. And look at all of this loot. Look at all this stuff we have. Didn't he say something about that too? Just as God has promised. We just need to pause and look back. I often think, For myself, first and foremost, we don't look back enough when we're looking forward. We we fail somehow to forget the fact that we serve a faithful God whose track record, by the way, is 100%. And somehow, somewhere down the line, he's going to drop the ball. We focus way too much on present rejection, and we make present rejection the terminus. You know, well, it failed. And we don't consider future redemption. We have future redemption and glory awaiting like Israel. And how quick we are to just drop it all because of present turmoil, because of momentary affliction. Let us not, church, like Israel, forget God's promises to us. Let me tell you something. In 2020, future glory awaits. I know it's hard today. I don't like it just as much as you do. In fact, probably I hate it more. Future glory awaits. 2020, 2021, who knows how long this thing will go, is a light, momentary affliction. A future weight of glory awaits. I pray, I pray you nestle in that this week. Okay, back to Exodus 5. And one last rejection truth illustrated here. Rejection source, rejection's weight, and now rejection's hope. Look at verse 15. As we turn back to Exodus, we continue. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. Israel's foremen now approach Pharaoh, and listen, this is a risky proposition in desperation. Did you catch that? These are the foremen now approaching the king of the world. This is bold. They basically tell Pharaoh something like this. We are beaten and cannot produce and it's your fault. You just feel that. That is calling out Pharaoh. I mean, it's bombastic. But listen, hopelessness, hopelessness always produces recklessness, doesn't it? Hopelessness always produces recklessness. Exhibit A is all around us. Hopelessness has a way, slowly but surely, if you let it percolate, it will always give way to this reckless abandon. Oh, what's the point? And it doesn't matter. And I got to cling at something. Give me a branch to grab onto, whatever it is. Beloved, don't miss that takeaway. And in fact, we look at these Israel foremen and you say, you know, that's Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh who you're calling out. This is no minor detail. Reacting in hopelessness Reckless responses in rejection, listen, beloved, can put you in danger. Reckless responses in rejection can put you in danger. As such, it needs to be mentioned here. Just imagine for a moment if the Lord's sovereign hand was not over this account, right? Can you imagine if he just released his sovereign hand and left them to Pharaoh? I don't think they would have lasted 17 seconds in that court if God's sovereign hand wasn't on them. Yes, the things we do left to our own devices. Is that not true? Yet again, I say in light of the sovereignty of God and how many squirm and want to reject the sovereignty of God in their heart, I say, do you want that? Is that what you want? Do you want to be like Israelites foreman and say, you know what, I got a plan. I'm going to march into Pharaoh and tell him exactly. No, you don't want that. 
You want the sovereign hand of God, not only guiding you, but in which you can just fall into and yield to his providence. Especially in light of what we see next. This is so telling. Look at verse 17. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then listen to this, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron. So these are the foremen who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. What a scene. Pharaoh, by way of God's mercy, by the way, right? By way of God's mercy, simply says, go now and work. Just stop stalling. Go and work. The foremen, left with nowhere to go, take out their frustration on Moses and Aaron. Do you see that? On their way back from Pharaoh, they invoke what's akin to a curse. That's what this would have been in the ancient Near East. They just curse their brethren. In one casual swipe, look at verse 21. The Lord look on you and judge. You've made us stink, Moses and Aaron. This is your fault. You gave them a sword to kill us. It's all you. Again, hopelessness is at work here. Not only creating recklessness, but look. Hopelessness looks for someone to blame. Hopelessness, beloved, mark this, always needs a scapegoat. It always needs a scapegoat. Moses and Aaron are the perfect fall guys here. They're God's messengers, right? Blame them. At this point, we need to be reminded of the corporate response to Moses and Aaron. We reference it one last time. Chapter 4, verse 31. These are the same ones that are cursing stink on Moses and Aaron. What did they say in chapter 4, verse 31? They bowed their heads and what? Worshipped. Oh, the fickleness of God's people. Remember that scene last time. People heard the message and they believed. And again, remember what was part of that message. Pharaoh's response, remember? That's why they were rejoiced. Because Pharaoh would, in a hardened heart, not let them go, but God was going to do something and they rejoiced. How quickly they forget. How quickly they forget. They were given that message. That was the point of God appearing to Moses to tell them. Tell them this, all of it. What happened? What, what happened here between the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5? Well, it's not unlike us in our journey from the beginning of Sunday to the beginning of Monday. J.A. Motyer describes it well. He says this, I quote him in full. Many Christians are given the opportunity in Sunday worship to affirm this. I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is all well and good, but we do not actually know what we truly believe in such a God, that we do truly believe in such a God, until Monday faces us with experiences that suggest that he is far from almighty and he's actually pretty unfatherly, unquote. How true? Is that not true? How often, Christian, do we quickly find ourselves so distant from what we're doing this morning? Monday morning's first activity often puts us to the test right away, and it does what? It exposes, like Israel, our unbelief. Beloved, it serves us no good to, call, to not call it what it is. Listen to me, it is unbelief. And the trajectory of the Israelites, as we see, and the rest of the Pentateuch demonstrates that. But Christian, for us, we say it this way, Monday morning grumbling Monday morning grumbling like this, regardless of how uplifting Sunday was, only exposes your unbelief. Monday morning grumbling, it doesn't matter how uplifted you felt on Sunday, exposes the unbelief at work in your heart. And here we see with Israel a pattern that will become their trademark. Let me give you these four steps, but you know them very well, don't you? Step one, belief claimed with vigorous head nodding. Yes, God, we believe and we will obey. Step two, trial ensues to test that claim. No straw in Egypt, food shortage in the wilderness. Step three, people grumble. Curse God even, unbelief exposed. And step four, all turn away, all turn away. Praise God except one. Look at verse 22. 
Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Wow, Moses. Wow. Now, in light of that, we need to be clear on two things with this discourse with Moses and the Lord here. We want to be clear so that there's no confusion here this morning. Number one, let's consider the negative. Nothing in this text condones Moses' tone and comments here. Can we be clear? Nothing condones how he's approaching God here. He is questioning God, he is blaming, and he's accusing God even. And listen to me, beloved, that is never, ever, ever okay. It's never okay. And can I say that there is nothing that can happen in your life where it's okay to accuse God, blame him, never. That's not what a child of God does. Look at verse 22. He accuses God of doing evil to Israel. And then look at the end of verse 22. Here's the Moses we know. The pity party returns. Why did you ever send me? Verse 23, and most telling, look at this in verse 23. He's not done. He says, you have not delivered your people at all. That at all there, those two words, they're pointing to an emphasis in the Hebrew that lies behind this. It's emphatic. So it's Moses saying, you've not delivered your people, and listen, you've not delivered them at all. You haven't come through on anything, God, nothing. Again, nothing here by way of content is acceptable. This is, don't do this. Don't do this. That's the negative. Second, though, we do need to comment on the positive. Everybody, after their bowing and worship and jubilance before God, turns away to that same God except who? Moses. It's just so stark and naked in verse 22, isn't it? Moses turned to the Lord. Like the afterword here, Moses turned to the Lord. You will see this again and again. Moses, and often only Moses, in the most tragic of circumstances, in the most abject apostasy, is the only one in a scene turning to the Lord. When God's people are turning to curses, to calves, and dreams about Egypt, Moses is the only one turning to God. Moses is turning to the Lord. Why? Why? We're reminded again, and here again is where the New Testament is so instructive. Hebrews 11, you can note that. Hebrews 11, verses 26 to 28, says this. Remember this commentary. In the hall of faith, which you've already referenced, he considered, Moses considered, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. That's where he was. Look at this then. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and so on. By faith, by faith. Those verses in Hebrews 11 tell us that Moses did what he did here in this Exodus account for two reasons. One, it says Moses was looking to the reward. He was looking ahead. He was looking up. And of course, that is exactly what we see here at the end of chapter 5. He was looking up. He was looking up. Secondly, Hebrews 11 also tells us that Moses did what he did what? Those two words? By faith. By faith he left Egypt. By faith he will keep the Passover. By faith he will walk. And the beginning of that famous 11th chapter tells us this about faith. Listen carefully for our Monday mornings. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses had faith. Faith that was the assurance of his hope. Moses' faith in this moment, by way of Hebrews commentary, tells us he couldn't see. He saw rejection. All he could see was rejection. But you wonder in his mind, almost Peter asked, to whom is he going to turn? He turns to the Lord. There's nowhere else to turn. And rest in him. Turning to God, that is the hope of Moses. And that is our only hope in rejection, beloved. Church, mark this. For God's people, there is always hope in rejection. You won't hear a commercial about that. Not this time of the year, right? 
There is always, listen to me, hope in rejection. If you're a God-fearer, there's always hope in rejection. That's because in rejection, our hope was secured. Our hope came into this world by way of rejection. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people, what? Did not receive him. Our hope was rejected by his hometown and relatives. Mark 6.4. Our hope was rejected by his own chosen people in life, in ministry. Matthew 21.33-44. And our hope was rejected by his own to the point of death. Matthew 27. In fact, we memorably consider they wanted a criminal instead of Jesus and they rejected him and said crucify him that's what we think of our coming king crucify him we reject him church let this be your comfort today our hope Jesus Christ was also rejection foretold rejection foretold there was no surprises when they released Barabbas instead of Jesus this is rejection foretold. Listen to Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Even more, this is the Lord's doing. Rejection is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That is prophecy long before Jesus Christ incarnated. Rejection foretold. That's the Lord's doing like Pharaoh. This is not plan B. Rejection has always been, market beloved, the plan hence our hope. And Christian, this is rejection foretold that is marvelous in our eyes. At least I pray it is this morning for you. Because it is rejection that will lead to deliverance for Israel, for the church. Yes, Westmount, to understand rejection, here it is, is to know your God. To understand rejection is to know your God. And unlike Pharaoh, we do know the Lord, Christian, don't we? We do know our God. We are his people, chosen by him, delivered by him, and loved by him. And now we pray to him. Father, how great indeed is your love for us. Oh God, that you would embrace and enact amid rejection. As we openly rebel against you while we were yet sinners, that you would send your son to die for us. What kind of love is this? Oh God, let us grab hold of rejection anew today and see right in the middle of that rejection your Son, Jesus Christ, whom in our fallen original nature, Lord, that's what we will do to Jesus every time. We will reject him. But in our regeneration, by your power, Lord, we have eyes to see. May we walk forward. Let Monday morning this week be different, that we would have eyes to see you all week long, not just this morning. Oh God, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.